Good morning. If you have a Bible, if you would please turn to Acts chapter 18. There are two strands of biblical truth that we see running throughout the whole length of the Bible. There's many more than that, but I want to focus on two right now. One is the idea that God is sovereign. The idea that God is over all things, He's in control of all things, that part of being God means that nothing happens apart from His will. J.I. Packer says, God's dominion is total. He wills as He chooses and carries out all that He wills, and none can stay His hand or thwart His plans. But there's also another truth that we see in Scripture, and that is the truth of human responsibility. The Bible always affirms from beginning to end that we are responsible for our actions, that God has given us the ability to make choices. And in fact, if we didn't have that ability, we wouldn't be moral beings if we couldn't choose the right or wrong. And so the Bible teaches there's these two truths running together. One is that God is over all things. But the other is that we are responsible. We are not robots. And though we are under the power of sin, we make choices and we are responsible for our choices. I want to just highlight two scripture passages. Um, we'll, we'll get to our text here in a moment. But um, Ephesians 1, if that could be brought up here in a moment, and Hebrews 4, both of these uh, passages affirm the idea of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And we'll come back to those now. But um, in this passage, in this story in the life of Paul, we have a really amazing intersection of these two realities, which we often struggle with. We often wonder, okay, how can God be over all things, and yet how can we truly be responsible for our choices? And in our passage today from Acts 18, we see these two things coming together. So let me go ahead and read Acts 18, 1 to 17, and uh, you'll see it on the screens as well. This is the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from <coughs> Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed a year and a half teaching them the word of God. While Galileo was proconsul of Acacia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him to court. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. 
Just as Paul was about to speak, Galileo said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Galileo showed no concern whatsoever. Let's pray. Lord, as we have just sung, you are God alone. From before there was time. And you are the sovereign king who rules over all things. And we pray, O oh God, that we would draw comfort this morning from your control and from your power. That you can take this good news of the gospel all throughout the ends of the earth through us. So, Lord, help us to know our part to play, like the Apostle Paul knew his part to play in taking this message to the ends of the earth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. How does God's sovereignty fit with human responsibility? As I've mentioned already, sometimes we might think, does one negate the other? Just two scripture passages uh, to highlight that, that these two teachings are found throughout the Bible. Uh, in Ephesians 1, uh, we read this. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God's sovereignty. And then in Hebrews 4, we read this. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Human responsibility. They're both here together. We're going to look at this passage from two perspectives today. First of all, the human perspective. Opportunity and opposition. We see Paul and we see as he's journeying about Throughout the book of Acts, on his missionary journeys, we're now on the third missionary journey, Paul sees opportunity and he also faces opposition. That's the human perspective. But from God's perspective, from his sovereign perspective, we see omniscience and omnipotence. God's knowledge of all things and his power over all things. Let's start with, God, with opportunity. We see this in verses 1 to 5 and 7 and 8. Paul has left Athens. In Acts 17, he was in Athens sharing the gospel, and now he travels to Corinth. And there he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And from Paul's perspective, this is great news. It's great news not only because they're believers, but it's great news because they also happen to be tent makers, and that is Paul's vocation. So Paul is able to stay with them and to work with them building tents. Now, I've got to say, if you're Paul, you don't have to build tents. Paul had every right, and he affirms this in his other letters, Paul had every right to make his living as a missionary or as a pastor or as an evangelist. Paul affirms that. But it was his conviction that he wanted to work a nine-to-five job building tents, making tents, selling tents, because Paul wanted to have this boast. He wanted to be able to say to anybody, hey, you, you say that I'm preaching the gospel just to make money. But look, it's, that's not the case because, look, I build tents. I don't accept money anywhere I go. Paul was bivocational. He had the right to earn money, but he chose not to because he wanted to be able to say to anyone 
who, who brought the charge. No, I'm preaching the gospel because I want to preach the gospel. See, Paul was a man who knew who he was. He knew his purpose in life. He knew why he was here. He knew what's got, what God's call was. You know, we think about Paul building tents. I bet Paul built good tents. I bet he offered something like a three-year warranty on his tents. I bet Paul was proud of his work. I mean, this is the man who said, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. But he wasn't defined by his vocation. He knew that he was a child of God, first and foremost, and that his mission in life was to take this good news to the ends of the earth. Now, we don't often think about this, but the most loving thing that you and I can do for another person who doesn't know the Lord is to tell them the gospel. We, we often don't think about that. But the most loving thing that we can do for a person who doesn't know the Lord is to tell them about Jesus and tell them about the gospel. Should we care for their physical needs? Absolutely we should. Absolutely we should. We should care about that personally. We should care about that as a church and, and our diaconate works in that area, and our mercy fund, which we collect every month, is a critical part of the ministry of our church. But first and foremost, in Paul's life and in our life, it must be the gospel. It must be this good news that we're not only preaching to ourselves, that we're preaching to the ends of the earth. And you say, well, well, Pastor, why, why is the gospel the most loving thing? Is that really the most loving thing that we can do for another person? And the reason is yes. Because there is nothing else that can transform a life or transform a marriage or transform a, a wayward child or the atmosphere in your home like the gospel. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Why is, why is sharing the gospel the most loving thing we can do for another person? It's because this message changes people. This message doesn't just... Uh, give us a nice thing to think about or to tell others that we believe, but it transforms us. And there's nothing else in this world that has that power. That's why if, if the New York Times or, or anything else or anyone else tells us that we are intolerant or that we're bigoted or that we're imperialistic or that we're Western or whatever by sharing the gospel with Je- of Jesus with others, that we still must do it. Because... There is nothing more loving that we can do for another than to share the gospel with them. If this message of the gospel is true, then there is nothing more loving that we can do for another person. Paul knows that. That's why wherever Paul goes, he sees opportunity. He, he wants people to know this love that he's experienced that has transformed his own life. And so he goes, and as his pattern is, everywhere he goes, he starts in the synagogue. And he shares the good news. And, uh, and, and the Jews reject the message that he is sharing. So actually, he sets up shop right next to the synagogue. That, that probably made the Jews a little angry. But he sets up shop right next to the synagogue in the home of this believer, Titius Justice. And sure enough, in God's good timing, the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, and his entire household are saved. And it says many others are saved as well. Let me ask us all a question. Of course, we're not Paul. We're not apostles. But can you and I see the opportunities 
that God has put in front of us to share Jesus with others. You know, it's easy to look at Paul's life and to think, well, he's Paul. Of course, of course it was easy for him to share the gospel. But what about me? You know, I, I can't share it in my workplace. I'm, I'm not going to share it with my neighbor. I don't want them to stop talking with me. Uh, my extended family, well, they already know I'm a Christian. Um, you know, and I don't want to cause a fight at Thanksgiving dinner. And many of my friends claim to be Christians. You know, and, and those who I'm not really sure if they are in their life, who am I to judge their life? It's easy, isn't it, to think to ourselves, and it's easy for myself to think, well, God, I, I want to share this message, but who, who is there to share it with? Who is there to share it with? Paul, his heart was to take this message wherever he went. He saw the opportunities that God had put in front of him. And while it's true that in some ways, without question, it was easier for Paul to share the gospel than it is for us, I, I agree with that. He was, an, he was an apostle. He was an evangelist. But in other ways, think about this. It would have been harder for Paul. He couldn't pick up the phone and call an old high school friend or an old college friend like we can and restart a relationship that could lead to sharing Christ. He couldn't post his sermons on a website. Um, he couldn't go to Lunt and Overcamp and ask for 20,000 tracts to be printed to hand out for the gospel. His work was painstaking. Paul was mostly reaching one, pe- one person at a time. I and mean, we have Pentecost, and we can rejoice in Pentecost because sometimes revival happens, and we should pray for revival. But as one of my seminary professors said to the class, he said, revival is like a medicine that, we, that, that a sick body needs. But the normal course of life is your daily food that you eat. And the normal course of God reaching people is one person at a time And that's how Paul so often conducted his ministry. Notice that we are given the name of a person who converts, Crispus. Just one name, Crispus and his household believed. And it says, many others as well. There's a quote on the screen uh, you'll see by a man named Elton Trueblood. He says this, Most people are reached one by one, as each is made to see both the inadequacy of his own life and the glory that might come in his life if he were to really give himself fully to the cause of Jesus Christ. But we must never suggest that such discipleship is easy or mild. Everyone who enters, says Jesus, enters violently or not at all. There is no easy Christianity. There is no mild Christianity. It is violent or nothing at all. So this is our calling. Isn't this fun? We get to say to people, Jesus loves you and it's going to be really hard. And you're going to have to give up everything. And you're going to have to die to yourself. Oh, and by the way, Jesus, he doesn't want just part of your life. He wants all of your life. That's what we get to do. That's our calling. And look, yeah, it's not easy. It's, it can be hard. And truly, we would say, on the one hand, while the gospel is the best news anybody could ever hear, on the other hand, the gospel is offensive. It is offensive to our pride and to our desire to run our own lives. And so we can rejoice that God is sovereign, and that our job is to take the message to other people and to trust that just like Crispus and just like Lydia and just like all the other people that we've seen in the book of Acts, God will keep reaching people one by one, family by family, and that he would choose to use weak instruments such as us. Just like God reached you, just like he reached me, one person at a time. Opportunity. Wherever Paul goes, 
he sees opportunity. And I think, and I'll say this as much for my own self as anyone else here, oftentimes I think our challenge is not so much that God needs to bring us new opportunities in our life, although we should pray that. We should say, Lord, bring a new person into my life that I can share Christ with. Bring lots of new people into my life that I can share Christ with. We should pray that. But we should also pray, Lord, open my eyes to see the opportunities that are already there. The neighbor that's already there. The co-worker that's already there. The family member that's already there. Lord, open my eyes. Remove the scales so that I can see the opportunities that you've already put in my life. And, and that's what Paul did. Wherever he went, he saw the opportunities to share Jesus. Now, opportunity is one thing we see, but we also see opposition. We see it in verse 6. Paul goes to the synagogue. It says, when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul experiences persecution. And the Greek word here for abusive is actually the word for blasphemy. And so it seems as though the Jews blaspheme the gospel that he's sharing. And Paul says, all right, um, and, and, Paul is, and Paul is somebody who said, I would die for my own people. But even Paul has a line where he says, all right, I've done my duty that God has called me to do. And now I'm going to leave and, and leave the results to God. And if we're faithful to the opportunities that God gives us, we will face opposition as well. It may not be exactly like this, but we will face opposition. Paul frequently faced a lot worse than this. Frequently physical harm, um, emotional distress, all kinds of struggles that he had. And as we, we think about this question of opposition, we might ask ourselves, why does God choose to do it this way? Why does God bring opposition into the lives of his people? And why even use us in the first place to save people, right? I mean, just think about it. Wouldn't it be easier if, if God just had a divine track that would just fall down from the sky, you know, Sunday at 11 o'clock every week, and, and that's how he saved people? Um, and then, you know, he didn't have to worry about us. Or why not just give everyone dreams or visions? Or why not have Jesus literally appear to people? So that then there'd be no doubt, okay, Jesus is real in a person becomes a follower of Jesus. Why use us at all? I think there's a lot of answers we could give to that. But one answer that we clearly see in Scripture is that when God uses us to spread His message, He accomplishes two things at once. Okay? When God uses us to spread His message, He accomplishes two things at once. One, He saves those whom He has appointed to eternal life. So because he uses us, that doesn't mean, and if you're like me, you think, wow, God, if you're going to use me, you know, my batting average, it's not going to be 300 here, Lord. It's going to be a lot lower than that. But that's not an obstacle to God because all those whom he, cho- he has chosen will be saved. So God saves those whom he has appointed to eternal life. But here's the other thing that God accomplishes by using us. When he uses us, particularly when we go through opposition, when we go through suffering, he changes us in the process. Some of you here today, you have a family member, okay? You have a friend. You have someone close to you in your life, and there's a hole in your life right now. There's a hole in your heart because they're not in Christ, and you're burdened for them. And, and I would say, praise God that you're burdened for them. You should be because you want them to know that love that you know. And as you pray for them, 
And as you struggle for them to know the Lord, and as you wait and you say, Lord, I'm waiting. Some of you waiting on a child to come to Christ. God is at work changing you. And He's at work changing me as we struggle, as we suffer, just like our Lord Jesus did. Not only does God accomplish His purposes in salvation, He changes us in the process by having us follow the same path as Jesus. 1 Peter 2.21 To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. God wants to give us a joy and a peace that is a hard-earned joy and peace that comes through suffering and sacrifice just like we see from our Lord and Savior Jesus. What do we see from a human perspective in this passage? We see opportunity. Paul goes to the synagogue. He's rejected. He goes next door. All of a sudden, God's at work. He's preaching the message. He's faithful. He leaves the results to God. Crispus and his family come to Christ. We see opposition. Paul's opposed. But now I want us to take a moment to to think about this passage from God's perspective because we see omniscience and omnipotence in this well, God's perspective. First of all, let's just define these words um, because I know these aren't words we use every day. Omni, of course, is the Latin prefix meaning all. And this is what God's omniscience is. You have a definition on your screen from J.I. Packer. It's that God knows everything about everything and everybody all of the time. All of his knowledge is always immediately and directly before his mind. God knows everything. Now God's omnipotence. This is his complete power over everything, everyone, and every situation. There is never a situation in your life, my life, any, anywhere in the world that is outside of God's control. And we see that in this passage. We see that God knows everything and that he's orchestrating everything. How do we see God's omniscience and omnipotence in this passage? It's really, it's really cool to, to think about this. We're given this very brief explanation. And you may read Acts 18 and you may kind of read over this and, and not think much about it. But this is what we're told at the beginning. Paul's in Corinth. We know that Timothy and Silas are not with him and, and Barnabas... Because in Acts 15, Paul separated from Barnabas. They went their separate ways. Silas and Timothy have not come yet. So Paul is by himself. And he's following God's call. And he goes to Corinth. And lo and behold, who does he meet? He meets Priscilla and Aquila. And as I mentioned, this was perfect for Paul. Because not only are they believers. And not only are they Jewish converts to Christianity. So he can relate to them. He knows exactly what that's like. But they're tent makers which is his occupation, that's his vocation. It's, it's the perfect situation for Paul to arrive in. And then we ask this question, well, maybe it's just coincidence. They, Paul just happened to run into some believers who had his same occupation. But then we read a little historical note, which says that Emperor Claudius had just kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and Priscilla and Aquila are from Rome. So in God's perfect directing of the future, he has brought this couple to Corinth at this time, And by the way, we think they went back to Rome from some of Paul's other letters. So at this perfect moment, God has brought these believers to Corinth so that they can minister alongside Paul. Archaeologists discovered in 1905 an inscription at Delphi, which um, proves this historically, this expulsion of the Jews by Claudius. We can date it to 51 AD. So in God's perfect timing, 
he has brought these two events together. We also see omniscience and omnipotence in Paul's vision. You know, Paul may have been ready to to move on from Corinth. We know he wants to go to Spain. We know he wants to go to Macedonia. We know he uh, he wants to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. And perhaps Paul was getting ready to pack his bags, and then he has this vision from God. God says in verse 9 of the passage, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching the word of God. God keeps Paul in Corinth for an additional year and a half by, making, by giving him these three commands. He says, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent. Three commands for Paul. And then he backs them up with three promises. I am with you. No one is going to harm you. And I love this, I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. A third instance where we see God's omnipotence, his omniscience, is it starts in verse 12. Paul is in Corinth. He stayed an extra year and a half. He's preaching the gospel. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. The Jews form a, a group that they're ready to take Paul down. And they're out for blood. They're not out to just, you know, give him a ticket or something like that. It's like, we want this guy dead. And so... Crispus, who converted, was the synagogue ruler. Now there's a new synagogue ruler. It's Sosthenes. And the Jews, led by Sosthenes, they arrest Paul. And they take him before the proconsul, Galileo. Now, if you're Paul, this is at least what I would be thinking if I was Paul. I would think, Lord, you gave me this vision. You told me that I was not going to be harmed. And, and Lord, I believe you. But I'm really interested to know how you're going to get me out of this one. Because if you go and read, and read throughout the book of Acts, um, you know, they don't just give tickets when you're living in the Roman world. A beating was like, you know, was like going five miles over the speed limit. A flogging was like going 10 miles over the speed limit. That was the minimum of what you did when, when you were opposed. And you can read about Paul's life. He's always getting beat up. He's always within an inch of death. And here God has said to him, you're not even going to be harmed, Paul. And if I'm Paul and I'm being taken into the courtroom, I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I believe you. I have faith in you, Lord, you know I'd die for you, but how are you possibly going to get me out of this one without even a scratch? And look what God does. The Jews present their case to Galileo, and Galileo says, um, this is an interreligious matter. I don't, I don't even know why you guys are here. Let this guy go. And in fact, I should point this out. Paul doesn't even get a chance to speak. He doesn't give a chance to open his mouth. He's probably, you know, if I were him, I'm going through my speech in my mind. What am I going to say? How am I going to defend myself? Lord, give me the words. But it says in verse 14, just as Paul was about to speak, God says, watch this, Paul. I'm not even going to let you talk. You know, I told you I told you, you weren't going to get hurt. I'm not even going to let you talk. I'm going to show you how sovereign and in control I am of this situation. Paul doesn't even get to speak. And, and then Galileo says, hey, this is an interreligious matter. Work it out yourself. And... I think we can't help but, but kind of laugh a little bit at, at this. Then Sosthenes gets beat up, you know? And I, I'm reading the passage, I'm thinking, how ironic is this? They bring in Paul, they want to kill him. God's already said, Paul, you're not even going to get a scratch. And just for maybe irony's sake, let's get Sosthenes. He's going to get beat up. The, the leader of the Jewish mob opposed to Paul, he's the one that gets beat up. We're not positive if it was the Greeks or the Jews who beat him up. I think it was his own people. 
I think they're embarrassed. They're ashamed. They've, they've maybe been planning this um, attack on Paul for a year and a half. All their plans, and Galileo comes in and says, come on, give me a break. What are you guys doing? Let him go. And Sosthenes gets beat up. Interesting note about God's sovereignty. If you read 1 Corinthians, the very first verse of 1 Corinthians says this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, we don't know for sure if this is the exact same Sosthenes, but it's a fairly unique name. And here's what might have happened. Sosthenes gets beat up in front of everybody, publicly humiliated and probably left in a puddle of his own blood. And the crowd leaves. They didn't get their way. Paul's fine. And I can just see the Apostle Paul going up to Sosthenes and saying, can I tell you about Jesus one more time? (laughs) And wouldn't it be just like God to save him? The second synagogue ruler to be saved and brought to Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians, which we know Paul is writing later, all of a sudden now Paul is writing along with his brother Sosthenes, the one who tried to kill him. And now is just like Paul, just like Paul tried to kill believers before he's converted. And now God says, no, that's what I do. That's the kind of thing God does. He saves people who want to kill his people. A few points of application before we end. God is omniscient and he is omnipotent. And what he calls us to is faith and faithfulness. First of all, faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we live by faith, not by sight. You know, you you can just see Paul, how he lives his life. If Paul was trying to micromanage everything in his life, he would have never been used of God the way he was used of God. But Paul knew that his calling was to have faith in God. It was to trust God in the circumstances. When God makes a promise and says, Paul, keep speaking. Don't be silent. Trust me. Paul says, okay, Lord. Okay, you told me nobody was going to harm me. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to live life by faith. So often, we don't think, myself included, about God's sovereignty. We don't think about his omniscience, his omnipotence, that he is in control of all things, whatever that thing is in your life or my life. God is in control. We are called to a life of faith. And secondly, we're called to faithfulness. And I want to directly uh, make an application here to sharing the gospel to evangelism. Paul knew the greatest evangelist of all time. Paul knew he couldn't save anybody. He gets it. I mean, that's why he can even say, like he says to the Jews, hey, I've done my duty. I shared Jesus. And if anybody's going to get saved, it's going to be God who does it. And that should be our attitude as well. Our calling is simply to share the message and leave the results to the Lord. We, but that means we need to be bold. We need to take opportunities. We need to, it's not an excuse to not share. But the results we leave to God because God alone has the power to save. Paul knew that he, in his own eloquence and wisdom and all of that, couldn't save the most open person in the world. But he also knew that God could save the most hardened person in the world. And he knew that because it was him. That was Paul at one time. You know, if Paul had a T-shirt that he wore around the ancient Near Eastern world, I think it would have been this. If God can save me, why not you? That could have been Paul's T-shirt. And that's how he lived his life. He was a living testimony to it himself. Our calling 
is faithfulness. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. And I love the rest of this verse. Listen to the rest of this verse. Do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. We're, we're not called to, to, to necessarily be Billy Graham. God has called Billy Graham to that ministry. But we're called to be who God has called us to be and to be always ready to share Jesus with anyone who asks with gentleness and respect. That's our calling is to be faithful. I want to end with this. A sobering reality and an encouraging reality. To wrap up, I mentioned God's sovereignty and human responsibility at the beginning of the sermon. It's a sobering reality is that human responsibility means that everyone will give an account to God one day. You and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will have to give an account. And there will be no excuses. There will be nothing we can say, well, God, no, it's you didn't let me do this or you didn't let me do that. All God will really have to do is push play on that videotape of our thoughts, words, and deeds for our lives. And about three and a half minutes in, we'll say, okay, Lord, we're sinners. And that's true of every person on planet Earth. It's a sobering reality. And we should be burdened for those who don't know Jesus. But there's an encouraging reality here as well, which is that God delights to save. We see repeatedly in the scriptures, God says, I, I delight to save. I love to save. My love is there for all who will receive me in faith. And our calling is to be faithful and to entrust the results to the Lord and to know that we don't serve a capricious God or an indifferent God, but a God who delights to save. And we know he delights to save because he sent the Lord Jesus, his only son, to die on the cross. I'll end with this. Could it be that God has many people or maybe just a few people or maybe just one person in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your community, and that God wants to use you, his power through you as an instrument to bring that person to Jesus. May God use all of us in that way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you do love to save, that you are in control, exalted. We can commit all things in our lives to your hands. We thank you for your power, your knowledge, and your love. Use us, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.